0: Welcome to the Mythic Life Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Brummett, and joining me today is a good friend of mine, Sean Barry. I've known Sean for the last, I'd say, year and a half since I moved up to the area of New Paltz. We both have kids that went to school together, and I got to know Sean. We have had some crossover history of, like, places that we lived, and, um, We are going to have some fun today exploring the concept of economic structures and partnerships and the sense of community and see where we can really enlighten what is happening in this current stage of, of life. Thank you for joining me today, Sean. It's so exciting to have you here.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here.
0: Sean is an organizational strategist inspired to harness the power of business to create resilient local economies as patterns to be documented, open source, scaled globally, and adapted regionally. Sean left an early career path in nuclear physics... Research to found the Wood Shanty Cooperative, a custom cabinet and furniture shop in San Francisco, to set the standard for ethical craftsmanship in the green building movement. This hands on experience as an entrepreneur combined with community organizing and systems theory to craft the vision for lift economy to model an economy that works for all life. Wow. Nuclear physics research. Oh, yeah. Oh, my oh. gosh. I feel like there's so much of your past. We've really only connected over the fact that you lived in San Francisco. You're up in Grass Valley doing some of more your spiritual work. That's right. But there's this huge span of who Sean is that I really don't even know. Share with me, like, where did you grow up? Where was kind of your beginning? I want to hear your story. Sure. Thanks.
1: So let's see. Well, today we're in the Hudson Valley of New York, but I actually grew up in western New York, which is like closer to Ohio than uh, New York City. But um, yeah, born and raised in Rochester up on the great Lake Ontario. Yeah, I lived there, you know, my whole childhood. And then I went to college there. Basically, I went to uh, Geneseo, the SUNY State School there. What inspired you to go into um, nuclear physics? So, um, you know, I was just kind of like doing the next thing, right? You know, it's like, you're a kid, they put you in school, on playing a bunch of sports. Uh, I got recruited to play soccer at Geneseo. Geneseo still is, uh, it's actually really hard to get into. You have to have like really high grades and everything. And i I wasn't like that. So I got in as a student athlete. And then when I, when I got in there, they said, well, you know, what are you going to study? And I was like, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm going to play sports. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, what did, what did you like in in high school? And I actually had a great, my senior year, I had a great physics teacher that did amazing like, uh, demonstrations in the class, you know? And so I was like, well, that was the coolest class. So, you know, physics, sure. And they're like, oh, okay, no problem. And then they put me into the, you know, the physics track for physics majors. And, and I wound up not failing out. I don't know if you if you know about like the hard sciences in, in college. You know, if you get like a 30% on a test, you know, maybe that's a B or something. You know, there's there's this um academic rigor, uh, which again, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a really diligent student, but I guess I, I could understand the concepts of the relationship between things and the, the mathematics as the language. So I wound up passing these classes that everybody else was failing out of. And so I was like, mm, yeah, maybe I'll just kind of stick around. I wasn't Committed to it or anything. I had this kind of naive notion of like, well, if this is like the hardest degree to get here, then, you know, then I'll get the best job. Right. Again, super naive uh, notion, but there was something like that in my mind of like, oh, okay, sure. I'll just do the hard thing. Uh, And then that school actually, and I think to this day has one of the largest undergraduate physics programs in the country. And interestingly enough, um, no graduate program. Wow. So as an undergraduate, I got to teach astronomy. We actually had a nuclear or a particle accelerator. So I actually got to run the particle accelerator and do experiments. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then through, you know, the connections and the funding for all that stuff, I was kind of funneled into a National Science Foundation research grant at the University of Rochester. So I would work summers and vacations there. And at that time, it was the largest laser in the world. It has since been replaced in Lawrence Livermore Laboratories in California, now has the largest laser and they're actually making some advances on that project but when i was doing it i mean it was interesting you know it was a billions and billions of dollars going into this so you know it was quite the kind of advanced facility and so it was kind of cool to to see and participate but when i graduated from school they offered me a job there i was a little more curious and i was kind of was having kind of having a more of an expansive moment of thinking about hmm what is the purpose of life? And what is all this school and career stuff? And, you know, it's kind of thinking beyond some of these things. And then so I got curious about like, well, what exactly the research you're doing here, they had told us it was for fusion as an alternative energy source, which is what happens in the sun, of course, which is great there. But it's definitely harder to recreate here on Earth. What I was getting, you know, a little, a little more curious about that, one of the, the folks I worked with, kind of let me know the, the secret that it's really bomb research. And that was that was kind of like the beginning of the I guess the unraveling of, uh, you know, believing what I was told Uh, because I was I was really I was shocked and offended of like, hey, bombs, war, killing people, ethically immoral. Yet I thought I was doing the right thing by going to school and getting the degree and getting the good job at the, you know, the competitive laboratory and all that stuff. So it was really this moment of like, wait a minute, what is really going on here? didn't accept that. I moved to San Francisco, uh, wound up starting a woodworking company. So it really kind of, that was a decision point that sent me on this different path.
0: Wow. That's a big pivot to go into that sense of craftsmanship and like get into something so organic versus this huge concept of nuclear fusion and, and that path. And, you know, it, it's amazing because this really is something really dear to my heart and to the work that i do of like how we grow up and we're kind of prescribed life you know and we're like oh okay so this is the template and we're going to fill our template with our personality and then all of a sudden we realize wait a second we don't have to fill this template we don't have to fit into a box and so you go out to San Francisco and you get into this craftsmanship. What was unique about this company that you were a part of? What happened there that really kind of helped you step into the sense of like co-op community and take that direction?
1: Yeah. So I guess the the kind of the bridge to that was, while I did study physics, I also studied studio art. And my father was a painter uh, and an artist. And so I had a lot of just like hands on experience, not necessarily directly connected, but one of my grandfathers was a farmer and ran a big farm. So I would work on the farm. So I had this, you know, kind of embodied sense of, you know, using my body, you know, creatively and productively that again, didn't necessarily translate to the, you know, computers and science and just numbers and data. There was, it was kind of missing that piece for me. So I had this idea of like, you know, kind of this disillusionment with, you know, basically corporate capitalism, career orientation was like, well, if these are the options, you know, like I'm going to do something creative and do something beautiful with my hands. And so, but I also saw my, my father and also I had an aunt, she made art, her profession and I saw really struggle with like, you know, how do you sell art and make a living and all that kind of stuff. So I was trying to think that I had done a lot of photography and I knew that was really competitive to get into. So I was kind of like scratching my head of like, hmm, how can I do something creative and make a living? And there was a little furniture shop in my neighborhood that was hiring woodworkers. I saw a little sign and I was just like, kind of, you know, light bulb moment and just went in there and was like, hey, you got to hire me. You know, convinced the guy to hire me and started working there. And then very shortly after I started working there, the guy who started it uh wanted to get out of the workshop. He was, he was losing money. He didn't know how to run it. He wasn't even there. He was running a, a retail store. So me and what turned out to be uh, my co-founder we took over the lease, bought the tools, bought a bunch of wood, started making furniture. So it was kind of like this really serendipitous, you know, yeah. no business plan, no capital, no no really plan about it, but just like, yeah, I'm not going to do a normal thing. Let's do something ourselves. Let's do something with our hands, something creative. And then I also, again, with the naive notions, we kind of had this idea of like, yeah, hey, you know, we'll just, we'll go surfing in the morning and hang out, whatever. And then we'll make a little bit of furniture. It's all going to be great, right? And it was great in, in terms of it was a lot of fun. We ran a workshop with ourselves and a bunch of friends that would come in and make different projects. You had touched on these, you know, concepts of community and engagement. So yeah, so instead of you know going to a cubicle somewhere or a laboratory or you know, some kind of pigeonholed economic activity that I would get paid for, it was like very wide open, creative. It was our own workshop. You know, We set up the space. We got to decide what we were going to make. We you know, invited friends and people to come in and build furniture with us, um, work on projects. So yeah, it was very fulfilling in that sense of what do I want to do today?
0: With that, I hear you kind of went through this additional cycle of like this idea, this template of business, right? And coming into this space and the person Who was running it was like, I'm not making money, I'm out and taking it over. It's so interesting because we don't want to recreate the wheel in starting over. And yet, this template of what the design of a company is, you know, and like what we're supposed to do and what the agendas are around money and business, it has certain truths to it. And at the same time, it has, so many constraints in its concept. And, you know, this is where I want to really explore with you of how that inspired lift economy and what exactly is this concept of lift economy. You know, in the concept of mythic life, a mythic life is free from the constraints of old stereotypes led by the adventurous soul that is striving for joy Fulfillment of purpose and the quest for higher growth and connection. A person who believes there is more than meets the eye that pursues personal development, alternative medicine, lifestyles that are wanting to break free from the societal norms and explore their mystical abilities. There's greatness within everyone and a soul desiring for joy. And with this idea of like breaking free of these stereotypes, what is the stereotypical business design that lift Economy kind of speaks to and wants to like hit that reset button. Tell us what, what is Lyft Economy?
1: Sure. Maybe I'll just, again, kind of bridge it from my story so far of, you know, so I had this wood shop kind of making, making furniture with friends, you know, this very um, kind of engaged and pretty open lifestyle, right? Like I set my own time, I, I work as much as I wanted, et cetera and uh very little awareness of business no planning no budget and i remember it was like a rude awakening maybe a few years in when um i realized i needed to do taxes and you know was summarizing my my income and expenses and realized i made like i think i made like $2000 one year or something right i wasn't making money i was losing money i was in debt and um you know not running a profitable business but again <laughs> my mind was on such other things that it just, it, it wasn't even a concern. So it took a long time to get that awareness and get the skill sets and also get the clientele and the customers. So eventually the, that little wood shop grew into, you know, a million dollar company and we had 10 people. We made it a worker owned cooperative on the, you know, on this community theme of, I didn't want to do something just myself. So I did it with a bunch of co-owners. I wasn't necessarily the boss. I was one of the owners, right? So it was this Pooling of a collective intelligence and, and intention. That was really, really fascinating. But the business profitability definitely came really late. And there was pain associated with that, right? Of just trying to, you know, living in San Francisco, which is, you know, one of the most expensive cities in the world and grinding it out in this tiny little, you know, labor kind of craftsman salary. So that experience of myself and then kind of seeing across the movement of, progressive organizations or enterprises, people that kind of realize the bigger problem statement and are self-inspired to pursue a particular solution or do it with a, you know, community or group of friends. And so I could see across that movement that I wasn't the only one that was missing, you know, some basic business skills. In fact, a lot of people were either missing it or even completely allergic to it, right? This attitude of this was my attitude as well. It's like, hey, we're doing this cool community thing and we don't know about the budget or project management or defined roles or, you know, legal yeah. contracts or all the, you know, the hard business skills. And we're suffering because of it, right? There's turnover because you couldn't keep people because you were paying some consistent salaries and benefits, et cetera. So have, having finally kind of made it through that curve with this small business, just had this realization of like, hey, if we can share some of the skills and learnings that we've gone through, and we could shortcut this cycle for You know, even some people that would be a worthwhile use of my energy. And then also seeing in long term of like probably wasn't going to be, you know, a career woodworker of just making furniture with my hands for my entire working life. And also seeing, again, what pay is available for that type of craftsmanship is actually really low. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. this weird thing where in the trades, people want to go into woodwork because it's kind of a refined, you know, craft but the pay is less and less for that because you can get people working out of inspiration. Yeah. So it's actually really low wages. Yeah. So that was the kind of the idea for Lift Economy was to take some of these different ways of doing business that are in alignment with vision for a simpler economy, an economy that works for all life, and then offering them out. So I left the the Woodworking Cooperative in 2010 and started yeah coaching and consulting with, with other small businesses. And now it's been 13 years and I have a team. We have a team at Lift Economy. We're about uh, eight people now. Still mostly Bay Area, but decentralized team. Yeah. Even in 2010, we started, there was, you know, video conferencing and such. So, you if I was in San Francisco, if, you know, if I had to go to Oakland, that would take all day or half the day or whatever. So we were doing, you know, video conference meetings and, and all that stuff back then. So it's, it's been great. 13 years. We've worked with 300 or so small teams and this actually ties into like the physics like looking for patterns and trying to understand like the smallest elements and how they how they stack up and make bigger things and so what we've done with our our consulting is looking for the pattern of what's what are the, what are the business problems that any small organization has to solve and that as like a complete checklist and so that's that became our consulting methodology and now we've evolved uh now we teach that we have the next economy MBA which is a webinar and and a book uh, that we've published, where we're we're actually teaching that out instead of just one to one consulting, we're teaching it you know one to many. We have over five hundred people uh, through that program. So that's kind of the <laughs> the arc of starting and kind of evolving into until where I am now.
0: Wow, what a beautiful journey! You know, it's amazing how we go through life experiences and either we pursue the life lessons or the life lessons kind of force us to mature. Mm. You know, when I look at the arc of my practice, I started my practice in 2003 in New York City, just as a private service of healing and consulting with people. And and I had like zero overhead. I actually had to network with healing centers. And the first place I worked out of, she's like, Oh, just come in and and work on my clients, and you know we'll do a percentage split. I'll, I'll take thirty percent, and you get seventy percent based off what you charge them. And so I didn't have to like pay a rental fee. I got to run events. She had a community. Like I just got to step into this experience, and then she's like, so you know she wanted to fold me into her practice and like have me sign um, an agreement that I wouldn't work anywhere else or. With anybody else. And it's like, mm, that doesn't feel right. And I left. And then I started to have to face that journey of stepping into more overhead. And I always wanted to keep things simple and, and light. And um, eventually I ended up partnering with two people, one of them being Sarah, my wife, and another being Tara Greenway, my ex-business partner for Theta Healing NYC. And we launched our brick and mortar healing center. And Hired our first employee. And I, I can actually see the growth of maturity of our business by the cycling of employees that we had, of who they were, what their quality was, and to where it is now. And um that journey, it's like it's hard to really learn those skills, honestly. It can be such a challenge to realize like the financial model, the roles, the expectations, the agreements, as you referenced before. And some of that is so needed. And then at the same time, it feels like there's this new era um, that's kind of emerging of people both being in micro economies and then also this huge global network. Like I outsource things to somebody that edits my videos that's halfway around the world and have no real relationship with them. They're just an independent contractor. You know, it's like, Oh, instead Mm -hmm. of having employees, it's just all these independent contractors and everybody's picking up 10 hours from this client 10 hours from that client. Instead of this, like I'm going to work full time with one person concept. Yeah. What's your take on that? What's your feeling about this hybrid from these large huge corporates to the smaller groups and like how to manage what outsourcing is versus really honoring our employees
1: well i see it kind of uh both ways there's some beautiful things that come with the technological advancement and then there's also some kind of proliferation of exploitation and further concentration of wealth right on the kind of the shadow side yeah but on the freedom side it's like great, you have this ability to do things that you didn't before. Like, for example, when I was first running my my woodworking cooperative, you know, I had to do all of the payroll and all that stuff myself, or I I wasn't doing it properly, or, you know, I wasn't doing my compliance and tax forms. And now you can just buy like a subscription to something that like does it for very cheap. Right. Whereas I used to, I used to have to like, pay a, a admin assistant or somebody to do that. And it was, you know, quite expensive. So there's, there's some efficiencies there. And then there's some like, like you were, I think, um, alluding to of of like some disconnection, right? Uh, it's a lack of lack of contact and lack of relationship. And so, yeah, in, in a way of being conscious of how do we run business in a way that nourishes life, which includes, you know, human relationships and fulfillments and also our interaction and effect on our ecologies. Yeah. We need connection and reciprocity and uh, to be appreciated and seen, et cetera. So that's one of the, I think the forces of modern capitalism that we need to kind of offset or just be aware of, of this idea of like, hey, if I give you a certain amount of money for a certain product, we're even, right? It's neutral. I don't owe you nothing. You don't owe me anything, and in fact, you know, now with the internet stuff, we could not even meet each other or even know each other at all, right? Whereas if we cast back into, you know, traditionally as humans, we're only alive as a species because we existed in small interdependent groups where you would know everybody and be in very deep relationships. So this idea of currency changing the way we interact, uh, I think is important to to understand and to design against. So if, you know, if the trend is towards you know, less interaction, less dependency. Well, we need to build in that interaction and dependency somehow. So that's our focus on not just cooperatives, but like democracy inside a business. So, um, you know, worker co-op or consumer co-op or the different cooperatives are, it's like a, it's a formal legal structure where there's the, um, collective, uh, democratic decision making and governance is built in legally, but you can do that in any team and it doesn't have to be that legal structure. And that's kind of the trend we see is, Small businesses, even if it's a sole proprietor with employees and stuff, they're highly affiliative, right? They really care about their team and they circle everybody up and consult with them as opposed to just top down, do what you're told, which is more of a, you know, an older pattern. So these are some of the things to yeah, be aware of and try to try to build in because, you know, again, if we want uh, resiliency, we want to be around for a long time. We need we need that kind of connected group of people that is uh, collaborating to meet our needs together. So just, yeah, raising that, that awareness of how do we build relationships and, and the importance and the value of relationships and not just reducing it to a, a financial exchange. I feel like both in, in the way
0: of each individual business, but then also a larger sense of community, you know, like I do my work, I work with people around the world online, you know, and then I spend my money locally, you know, and, and like, I, do my best to go to local shops rather than corporate ones. And I I am a garden hobbyist, you know, like I, I love my garden, but obviously it's not going to provide me year round. And so I go to places. And, and the other day I went to a local farm to pick up some produce and uh, it's self-serve, right? It's at the farm. You go in, it's honor system, you check yourself out. They do have a camera, even though it's honor system, but... Those are important things. And I looked at the price and the price of the chicken legs was almost double what I pay at the local health food store. Yeah. And I'm questioning this going, it's pasture raised. So what's making this expensive? They're not renting space. They're not paying an employee. I'm checking it out myself. I mean, why is it so much more expensive? And it's kind of this place of like building relationships that can honor each other and what is value versus what is currency is what it kind of is has been bringing up. And it's been a big conversation in my mind of like, you know, I want to be in the sense of local economy, but if I go to the farmer's market, you know, I'm spending twice as much on a jar of honey versus the one at the local market that's still local honey. I want to support things as a patron, but I'm not feeling honored in the relationship the same way how some employees don't feel honored within, you know, the construct of the company. Like what exactly is kind of see what I'm hitting on? Like,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're naming is, you know, what I would say is, is one of the, the huge problem statements of the, you know, we call it the business as usual economy or the kind of modern global economy. Um, where things are way cheaper than they actually are. And they're sold cheaper because there's massive externalities, right? So if you're getting, maybe I don't know enough about the supply chain, but I think Purdue or something is like a big chicken thing. You know, it's like billion dollar industry or I think there's something like 30 billion chickens killed a year or something. So it's got this massive scale, and they're selling this stuff super cheap, way cheaper than it should be. But then there's massive environmental degradation that happens, not just on the farm, but in the watersheds, in the air, transportation, all this pollution, the pesticides, the health effects. Right? None of that is in the the low price uh, in the store. So it's things really should be more expensive. But there's this precariousness, right? Of you know, I think it's like seventy percent of the U.S. population doesn't have enough money to make it through an, another month or an unexpected, you know, car repair or, you know, this type of thing. So, yeah. So the consumer base, even even if even if I really care, I, I can't afford to pay double for the local local farm even though they should get paid more because <laughs> the other farmers are getting paid way less and in fact in this country it's really strange uh, arrangement where you know, the agricultural industry does not exist without migrant labor, right? And undocumented labor just flatly doesn't just wouldn't happen at all. So, how does that? (laughs) How's that a legitimate, you know, how's that a legitimate setting? Um, It's not, it's illegitimate, right? If you can't even run it with legal labor that's paid benefits. So, it's this awkward
0: spot, right? It's kind of a paradox too, because on there's that side where it's like, you can't get free of buying the cheap things, but you also want to support and honor the sense of like small farms and things like that, but you can't afford it. So it's like, which one can adjust? Is it me having to be very strong and moral of going, well, then I'm just going to become a complete vegan? Or like, is it also the farmer that's the local farmer, maybe not having such a high rate and taking less money.
1: One thing I've seen on on that is, and the, this is a, it's a local farm. I know that there's a little bit bigger than the tiny farm, but they do sell locally at basically wholesale costs. Yeah. Um, so if you go to their farm market, it is actually cheaper than than what you would pay at the health food store. But then when they sell their stuff, you know, down to New York city, et cetera, through distributors, then they're actually charging, you know, top organic dollar. But they have that relative privilege. That's a family farm that's, I think, maybe four or five generations, right? So they own the land. It's been a successful family farm for that long. And yeah, they're able to do that. So they have the
0: capability to do it. It doesn't harm them.
1: Yeah, they basically run the local market as a service. And it's probably just a blip in terms of the amount of volume and volume of produce and dollars that come through it. It's, it's something they do to connect with the community. I mean, the other thing that, that I see, and, and you know, I'm sure you see it too, is is just people have chickens in their backyards. That is more common. I have next door, we get our eggs, you know, next door from our neighbors who have chickens. We have multiple friends, uh, you know, that they have meat birds and egg birds and, you know. Yeah. So it's like, okay, it's too expensive to buy healthy, organic, you know, free range stuff. Do it ourselves. Yeah. This goes back to, you know, again, our history as humanity is like. That's what we've been doing, you know, is is either either Novatic and following the food or, or growing the food where we live um, and having it being kind of embedded in our location and lifestyle. So community co-op versus capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some beauty to that. I'm like you where I grow a little bit of food and, you know, it's a hobby in the sense of I'm not supporting myself, but it's one of the richest, you know, parts of my life is harvesting from my property and and having a meal where we've grown something and we have some relation to it and it's it's certainly more delicious and fresher and you know more beautiful and then we've you know even if it's just one little basket of tomatoes we've opted out of that big cycle it's not at least it's not coming from Mexico right with pesticides and all the externalities on it so it's kind of this awkward moment right where we do what we can but then we still have to earn yeah. American dollars and a pay rent or a mortgage, et cetera.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's such an interesting time because we are so flooded with potentials, you know, like I was looking at my life going, sure. Yeah. i look at my bank account and I could go and do a whole complaint rant, but wow, I'm living like a King literally like a hundred years ago. I'm living like royalty. Like, it's incredible. And we have so much that is just fantastic of growth of civilization. And then at the same time, with things becoming so easy, it also becomes this thing of, well, what is the next step of growth? It's not to then erase it all and like go, oh, I'm going to return and live off the woods and like, completely isolate myself as a bubble from society completely, you know, like as much as there is this real return to nature that I feel is happening in, in our civilization. I have a, a student that she's like, I'm learning to bake all the breads that I love because I don't like how they all come in plastic and To reduce, I am going to take on the project of creating for myself instead of outsourcing it to an industry. And she's doing it for environmental reasons. And it's a big question of convenience versus moral, you know. And I think this is something that I'm wanting to bring more into my work, you know, so much of what I do is reprogramming the subconscious and wanting to empower people and help them tap into their intuition and like become more mystical. And yet when it comes down to it, how do we then anchor into lifestyle and be back in the sense of community? What is this sense of not isolating away and coming back to community? So when you explore, cause You work with the concept of co-ops. What does that concept really look like? How do co-ops come together in partnerships?
1: Sure. There's, you know, kind of as many forms as co-ops as you can imagine. I like to call them each their own snowflake because they're created by the members who create them for their own benefit, right? For their own mutual benefit. So you can have a worker owned cooperative where the workers of a a particular business are the owners and and make the decisions. Uh, You can have a consumer owned cooperative, which is much more worker owned cooperatives are much less common in this country. Consumer owned cooperatives are more common. People, you know, maybe would think of the grocery store consumer co-op, you know, where you, you buy a share and you pay a little cheaper price. Maybe you work a little bit. Maybe you don't, you know, there's different models. There's also producer co-ops. That uh, maybe people don't think of as co ops, for example, like Ocean Spray Cranberry or Sunkiss Citrus, Organic Valley Dairy. These are huge producer co ops where the indi- individual farms aren't cooperatives, but they market their produce together under that same brand for that collective benefit. And now, the one of the exciting things is in the last decade, there's now multi stakeholder cooperatives where you'd have multiple forms of membership. So you could have uh, worker owners, consumer owners, and producer owners in the same actual economic uh, entity. So you're you're actually getting a democratic Congress within a for-profit business. So this idea of United States as a democracy is pretty questionable because the government has been captured by, you know, economic interests. There's not really any controversy around that. And then, you know, as a, whatever you're, Democratic duty as an American is maybe maybe once a year you go to vote. Most people don't. Even on a, a four-year cycle, there's still something like a 55% turnout, right? So you have massive disenfranchisement of the electorate, which is supposed to be the whole point, right? So it's not really a democratic lifestyle. Yeah. But if you work at a democratic entity, then you're practicing democracy, you know, full time. And so my experience of doing that was seeing how deeply that changes people because you don't just work at a co-op and then go home and be a tyrant, (laughs) Yeah. right? You're building communication skills. You're building community skills, uh, emotional intelligence, uh, conflict Mm. transformation, you know, all this stuff you have to do. And so it actually builds more advanced, you know, citizens that will come home and solve problems themselves and organize their neighbors and their community. So that's why I've kind of chosen it as like a a major lever for this moment of like, how do we reimagine the economy in a way that actually nurtures our community, right? Because if we just go with the exploitation paradigm, you know, it goes something like this, get a really good degree, so you can get a really good job. But of course, you're in debt from the degree. uh, So then you get the job, and you're paying down the debt, then you get a big house with a mortgage. And then that takes 30 years, right? 30 years to pay for your home, right? So now you're you're basically committed to this whole career. So then you work your entire life so that at the end of it, you can retire and enjoy once you're too old to do much about it. So it's like you step back and be like, wait a minute, why did I work so hard? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this, this opportunity, right? Like you're saying, the relative abundance, I agree. We live like kings and queens in the past, you know, look at the lifespan, right? The average lifespan is, is we're pushing up 80 years, whereas 100, 200 years ago, it was 40 years. You know, we would be grandfathers or dead by now. Yeah. But now we have this, this long lifespan, which we get to live into and enjoy, enjoy our lives and our communities. So I think this is a tremendous opportunity and it's really hard because there's so much momentum to the exploitation economy and how, you know, it's supposed to be done, but, it, yeah. It doesn't have to be that way, and there's lots of room for creativity, reimagination, and a big element of it is basically downshifting, right? Just like, hey, you know, don't have such a huge house, don't have such a huge, uh, you know, expensive lifestyle with like exotic vacations and stuff, and then you can maybe enjoy your morning in your garden and you know, slower pace, um, and more, more relationship, more fulfillment, more embodied, you know, connection and interaction which is such a big thing for
0: not just mindset and health, but also intuition and relationships. Half of communication is listening. (laughs) You you have to slow down to listen. And it's such a huge key of downshifting. Like what, what what does that look like for people? Instead of trying to always keep up lifestyle expectations and once again, these prescribed lifestyles that were constantly fed. So, you know, I really appreciate that. Thank you. We are mythic life, free thinkers, deep feelers, courageous trailblazers. We own our myth with our vibes, how we think, feel, and act. We believe that love is a given, not something earned, that spiritual is sexy, kindness is cool, and earth is sacred, that everybody has superpowers. And life is too boring without magic. We walk our talk, and when life gets real, we heal. We choose our path and make it epic. And we've been joined here with my friend Sean exploring this concept of economic structure and money and like some of these design elements of co-op and community. And I, I just really appreciate you coming on with us today. For all of our listeners, you know, you can learn more about. Lift Economy and some of the programs, if you have small companies or businesses, they have incredible services at lifteconomy.com. And check out more about Sean and the work that they do because really it is incredible. Every time I have a conversation with you, I learn so many new things and I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Well, likewise. Thanks, Eric. It's always a pleasure. And I I likewise really appreciate what you're doing to uplift the human spirit and the potential of each person. And, you know, there's this powerful synergy, right? Between opening that awareness and pathways and how do we do the business and the economics of it. So I appreciate your work as well.
0: It's so important. We're in this sense of community in life and nothing's isolated, nothing's separate or alone. So the more that we can free ourselves from the busyness of thoughts and come back to those reflections, like. Where are my moral standards? What is my true need versus I'm just outsourcing, looking for pleasure? It's such important questions. If you want to know more about my work, you can check me out at mythiclife.com. If you want to be a part of the conversation, we do have our wonderful Facebook group, The Mythic Life Experience. On Instagram, at The Mythic Life, we're also on TikTok now at Mythic Life and Mythic Life on YouTube. Every month we do have our free healing circle if you want to come and join and have a nice meditation, experience the Theta Wave and receive a good healing. We have that every month. You know, if you are feeling overwhelmed and bombarded in your thoughts, so you feel a sense of anxiety or stress levels or feeling those lows, we do have our free live events every couple of weeks so check out what we have going on at mythiclife.com and thanks again Sean this is awesome it's a real pleasure connecting with you here and learning more about your work and hearing more of your history have a wonderful day everyone I'll see you all soon
1: thanks bye